0: Hello and welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host. And uh, look, I'm gonna. I, I'm. I'm kind of sandwiched in between. Uh, you know, a couple of things going on here. We got uh, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day, a shared holiday with uh, the nemesis of Indigenous people, Christopher Columbus. Um, but last week, um, and I didn't mention it during the show, although I did talk about uh, the Indian boarding school some. Uh, last Friday was the national Remembrance day uh, for victims survivors descendants of indigenous people's Day and it was celebrated both or, or commemorated I should say it's hard to call it a celebration in both the US and on the Canadian side and uh, you know we wore orange shirts for the day and uh, you you may have seen a bunch of uh, uh, every child matters uh, uh, t-shirts and that kind of that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, being sandwiched in between these two things, uh, I feel like I, I've got to put some scale to what I, what, what true, the true horror of what these Indian boarding schools slash residential schools were all about. Um, but again, let me, uh, before I do that, let me again, remind people we are in a a fun drive here on, uh, at WPFW and, um, uh, we are listener-supported radio. We depend on your contributions uh, almost solely, <laughs> uh, so we need your help. We always need your help, and you know that goes for all the Pacific stations. I'm uh, I'm on WBAI as well, although not this week. Um, it, it is it is so critical that those of you who listen to the station, and I know. Many of you listen to a wide variety of programs. It's it's not just it, you don't just come to WPFW or WBAI for me. I know there's a lot of other programming, um, but when you make a contribution and you do mention a show or you make a, a contribution in the name of a show, it does um, it does have weight and it does uh, it does matter. It matters to uh, to management. It helps them, uh, and of course, it matters to uh, those of us who are who are doing. A show on a on a daily or a weekly basis because uh, your support of the station that we're on in in our name uh, suggests that you that you're giving us a nod for the content that we're providing and for the the conversations uh, you know we are we are having. So um, let me ask you to go to, go to the pledge line and and I want to remind people this is the fall fund drive and we do have uh, you know we got a couple of themes. One of the themes is put your money where your ears are, and I say put your money where your heart is because a lot of what you're listening to, uh, to WPFW for, which is, you know, again, we're, we're jazz and justice radio. You, you know, and there's a connection between jazz and justice. I mean, there's a, there's a, almost a, a resistance in, in, in jazz and, uh, you know, and, and blues, um, that, you know, that really challenges, uh, inequity and, and so pushes for, for justice. So, you listen to these stations with your heart you, and your ears, and, and we ask that you support uh, with your heart as well. Uh, so I ask you to go to the pledge line. It's 202-588-9739, or you can go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate, and you can follow the, the prompts. And look, we're looking for people who will make a one-time donation, perhaps a timed donation, something that they, uh, they schedule uh, later on, um, uh, uh, and you know, probably just as important and oftentimes much easier for, for the listener to do is become a sustaining member of the, uh, of, of the station. And by that, we mean use a credit card or your checking account information. It's kind of like, you know, your subscription to Netflix or Disney plus or, or anything else only, you know, this content's here, whether you donate or not. So it's just the right thing to do. If you, if you make a contribution and you sign up for, a monthly contribution, um, and it could be something modest. It could be five or ten dollars, or fifteen dollars. You, you can get up into that Netflix range, but know that it's always here. It's always here for you, and if you if you do this as a sustaining member, then you don't have to worry about it. It's it's just coming out of your 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 checking account or your or your, your or charging your credit card, you know, once a month, and that is something that we can count on. We can count on that contribution. Um, it, it we essentially can budget it in. Oftentimes, the fundraising that we have to do can be um, minimized if by the number of sustaining members, because we don't have to like just jam and try to uh, you know generate a bunch of income uh, on a specific week or date or, or whatever else, because we know we have these sustaining members who are, who are making these contributions. So whatever you can do, if you can do a time donation, fine. If you can do a one-time donation, that's great. And if you can become a sustaining member, and if you are already a sustaining member, uh, you can always up it up a couple bucks. Uh, look, we're not going to, we're not like Netflix. We're not going to jack up the price and say, if you don't pay it, we're going to cancel. You know, we don't do that. But, if you uh, maybe you're in a bit of a better shot spot than you were when you when you first signed up as a uh, a sustaining member, and you can you can do a couple extra bucks if you can do it. Hey, hey that's great. It it, uh, it really does help out the station a great deal. Look, one of the other things, um, the themes of of this fund drive is uh, ensuring that WPFW remains on the air for the next seven generations. Now that's a really native concept, and specifically, it's a Haudenosaunee concept. And I know a lot of Native um, peoples have a seven generations um, philosophy or ideology uh, in, involved in much of their culture. For us, as Haudenosaunee, we aren't talking about the seventh generation. We are talking about making decisions today that impact the next generation, the generation after that, and and through the generations to the generation that we will never see. And, and I say that because, look, I've had... Um, I've had family gatherings where we've had five generations of uh, of of family members, not not a whole lot from each generation, but we've had five uh, generations represented in uh, at a family gathering. I don't know anybody who's had six, and I'm pretty sure nobody has had a uh, a a, a gathering where they were able to have seven generations in a room. And the reason is because we don't live to see that seventh generation, and that's why that's that's part of our. our culture, because we're saying that we have an obligation not just to the faces that we will see, not just to our children, not just to our grandchildren, but to those great, 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 great grandchildren, those children we will never see, those ones who will never come before us. Because you know, look, it's easy to say, okay, my child is is in my presence, is in my care. Perhaps your grandchild is, or or maybe it's it's more distant than that. Maybe it's a you know, it's a it's a niece or a great niece or a nephew or you know a great great grandchild. But as when you know that that when you know that individual when you know that family member, you know you have a responsibility as as a, as a family member. But when you think about that generation that you will never meet that you will never see, you know it's easy to make make decisions that that could negatively impact people you never have to meet, even if it's family. But see, within the Haudenosaunee culture, we say we have an obligation even to those family members, even to those children, even to those, those lives that we will never um, interact with. And, and we say that not just as a matter of our children and our great-grandchildren and so on. We mean each generation of life, each generation of, of the cycle of creation. So we know we have an obligation to that life that we will never necessarily um, have interaction with. And so when we say something like, you know, ensure that WPFW is around for the next seven generations, we mean that, you know, and all, but our immediate concern is the generations that we have here now. We know that the, the kind of content that we have on WPFW and WBAI is different than you get anywhere else. And we know the industry forces so much uh, upon um, various forms of media. But we try to maintain a consistency and a continuity. And, and I don't mean that in a, in a stagnant sense, but we try to buck the system. Look, as a native person, I often say, you know, our existence is our resistance. Well, that's true of, of, of stations like WPFW as well. You know, there, it, is a, um, it is a station that offers resistance to what is uh, being forced upon the, the radio industry. You know, we're, we're listener-supported radio. We, 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 we are answerable to you. So we ask that because we are answerable to you that you also show your support back to us, not just by listening. Listening is important. Spreading the word is important, but by uh, by contributing to the to the station. So, again, uh, the call, uh, um, the, the pledge line is 202-588-9739, uh, or you can go online to WPFWDC.org slash donate. Look. And as I mentioned, we are heading into uh, the holiday weekend, <laughs> and and it's a strange holiday for me. And and I'm gonna and I'll talk a little bit more. In fact, on Monday I'm gonna do a special hour at one p.m. Uh, in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day. Yes, we are not calling it uh, the other the, the other holiday that it's been called, and uh, and I'm gonna discuss part of the awkwardness. You know, especially being. Being a radio station that is broadcasting in a in a city that's called uh, Washington D.C. the District of Columbia, I mean, look, we, uh, th- this idea that Columbus and Columbia and, and all of these, uh, these these words associated with him are strewn throughout you know th- this entire hemisphere is is something that belies the truth, and, and I'm going to talk about some of that. That awkwardness, including the awkwardness of having a shared holiday—a holiday that is uh, that is probably for quite some time going to be listed as Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day—I mean, I, I hate to say the obvious, but that, that'd be like trying to celebrate, you know, some uh, a Hitler accomplishment um, and celebrate and do some sort of Holocaust remembrance at the same time. And it, it, you just—I mean, there's certain things that just don't mix. But I, but I get it, and and we'll we'll talk about that more on Monday. But 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 being here on this uh, this this Friday going into into this holiday uh, holiday weekend, um, you know there there are some things that uh, you know, that that this station has put together as a um, uh, a, a, a premium, I guess uh, to uh, to offer up. So what what they've what they've done here is they put together a um, um, an MP3 disc. With audio from John Trudell, Dennis Banks, Russell Means, and Winona Leduc. Now, look, you guys can listen to me all day, <laughs> and you know I'm on, uh, you know I'm on Facebook. I'm uh, my my show goes up as a as a podcast, uh, but these are other voices, and you know many uh, much of what these folks have done throughout their lives. And, and frankly, you know John Trudell, uh, um, uh, Dennis Banks, and Russell Means—they've all passed on. Winona is still still with us. Um, so there's a lot that these guys have cataloged in terms of audio and messaging. And look, I share much of the, the same sentiment that these guys, um, all of them have, have put out there over the years, but, but they have different, uh, different messages and they have, um, you know, different perspectives than I do. So if, if you're interested in, in having this, and, and again, the, this is something that is, you know, valuable because you can't listen to, to John or Dennis or Russell, live uh, like you can me or even even uh, Winona. So, if you're interested in getting this uh, this this disc, um, just ask for the Indigenous Peoples Day uh, pack, um, and for a hundred dollar donation, we will uh, we'll send that out to you. And uh, and you know, look, I, it'll give you a lot of a lot more content uh, and again different perspectives. Than uh, some of what I offer here, and some perspectives that you'll see confirmed. You know, some of the things that I said that you'll you'll hear that uh, you'll hear their perspective on some of the same subjects. So um, again, we're offering up the Indigenous Peoples Day pack for a hundred dollar donation, and you can ask for it by name um, or uh, look for it online. Uh, go to the uh, the the. The pledge number. Uh, call make the uh, the call. The pledge number, which is two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine, or go online to wpfwdc.org org slash donate, and we we'll greatly appreciate it. All right. So um uh, I what I've got to talk about is is the scale of what Native people experienced um, due to this this national both US and Canada um, strategy to eliminate native people and 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 let's not pull any punches here if you look at the definition of genocide it includes killing people um, harming people with the intent of, of changing them or, or or eliminating them as a distinct people creating any conditions for that matter congri- intentionally creating a condition that would, um essentially forced people to cease to exist and and of course including that was also um, doing things to uh, to eliminate childbirth uh, sterilization programs yes they happen to native people at these uh, at these schools and and of course you know, the, the final um, act that is considered a, uh, an act of genocide is is taking children which is what these schools were all about but the but the scale of it, I think is is lost, and and I want to put put it into perspective because, you know, as we talk about what took place at these schools, it's easy to think, oh yeah, this is just you know kind of like uh, clergy sex abuse. No, it isn't. It isn't like clergy sex abuse. Is was it clergy sex abuse? Yes, it was, but it's it isn't just a random priest, who you know who, who had some perverted ideas of what he needed out of a, out of out of a child. No, this was a wholesale program to eliminate a people with a strategy that was publicized as kill the Indian, save the man. Kill the Indian, save the man. Now, so what does that mean? <laughs> well, it essentially means killing a poor, at least a piece of of, of an, an identity or killing an identity to take, to take our children away and you're going to strip them away of everything that made them native. You, you, t- you took away their names. You changed their names. They literally went into those schools with a name from their, the, from their parents, their community, from their nation, and had that name stripped away. Oftentimes, and this is what isn't talked about much, by taking the name away, you, you, not, you didn't just sever some sort of surname uh, usage. You actually confused families. I mean, some of these children never made it back to. I mean, and I'm not talking about the ones who died. I mean, the ones who survived these residential schools never made it back to their families. Why? Because the names got got changed. And of course, you you destroyed a community by stripping away their children in the first place. So many of these children never had families to return to. In fact, would not even know who their families were because they no longer they they. i mean, look. They were they were forced to forget. Their identity, their culture, their language, their hair was chopped, their names were changed. Every pe- Any item that they had that in any way, shape, or form connected them to their, to their native culture was stripped away. That's what was killed. And those who resisted, those who said, no, you're not taking that away from me, and I'm going to keep speaking. They were punished. They were tortured. They were abused. And they were killed. If you were a belligerent child and didn't conform to what these what these abusive church-run schools uh, had in mind for you, again, government-funded, paid for by the Canadian, and the U.S. governments, these churches made money off of this stuff. They not only made money because they were funded by the by the federal governments of U.S. and Canada; they also became the powers of attorney or gained the powers of attorney over um, over these children. So some of these children came from territories. Where there was where money was assigned to these children and, and income, they, they had what they called the individual Indian monies accounts kind of thing. So I mean I've talked before about the wealth that the Choctaw had because of, of oil that was found. Well, they, these churches, these priests, these, uh, these school administrators, had control over over any of the, the, the assets of these children as well. And that's not even documented. That's not even, nobody even deals with any of that stuff. And if, and if it's money that was being uh, coming to them on a, on a monthly or a yearly basis, these children never saw it. So the abuse is amazing. But here's the thing that I think gets lost in all of this. This wasn't just a few children. This wasn't just a few schools. In the, on the Canadian side, there were over a hundred of these schools. On the U.S. side, there was over three hundred of these schools, and 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 by by these numbers, I'm talking about the federally funded ones. There were still many more schools. I mean, I'm I'm doing this program from the from the Cataraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. There was a school here that wasn't federally funded; it was state funded, the Thomas Indian School, and much of the same abuses that took place at any of these other schools took place here. So, you had many places, and California was was famous for this. Where, where the churches were, were self-funded, they were funded through, you know, however churches get their money, most of it through pillaging native territories, but, um, but they weren't necessarily funded by the, by the federal government. So there were not only over 300 federally funded Indian boarding schools in the U.S., but there were hundreds more that were not federally funded. And they were all, they were almost all, I don't know of any of them that weren't um, run by a church because church was part of the, um, the strategy. Because if you Christianize native people, you wiped out thousands of years of culture. And yes. So look, if you're native and you're listening to this program and you are a Christian, you've lost, you lost a big part of who, who you who your, your family was. And of course, the other scale that, that can't be lost in this thing is, is the time period. These schools initially started in the early 1800s. And, and, and when they started in the early 1800s, most of them were not necessarily all federally funded. Although, although there was a, a law passed called the Civilization Act. And, and I think it was like 1818 or, you know, the, again, the fairly early 1800s. And that is the law that provided the authorization to do these schools. And the funding, and, and that, that law was on the books, and that became funded, you know, over the over the years. So since the early 1800s until the 1970s in the U.S. and 1990s on the Canadian side, we're talking about 150 years. Let that settle in for a second. 150 years. That's longer than slavery was legal in the United States. Yeah. So we we talk about slavery and I'm not diminishing the horrors of slavery because native people were enslaved too. Yeah, I know some people say yeah but didn't they, some native people have yes there was some of that. The ones who who were assimilated enough that they could be slave owners because they had whitened themselves enough. Yeah, some of those some of those people did the same thing. But native people and this is the this is the irony that native people on on some one end of the spectrum could be slaveholders, and on the other end of the spectrum could be slaves themselves in the same time period. So for over, for a little over 100 years, or not, less than 100 years, slavery was legal in the United States. Now, it was legal a lot longer before the United States was a thing. But in terms of the, the, of the United States, this genocide that was committed through these residential schools, boarding schools, was legal. For a longer period of time than slavery was legal in the united states yeah i mean it's to me anybody who isn't putting that kind of perspective to this thing is is missing the the grander horror of all this because it went on for so long five generations of native people had their children stripped away five generations of our people had our children taken from us and during some of that 150 years, almost every child was taken. Not, now, it wasn't always every child. This is something that ramped up, and and there were you know, huge numbers at, at some point. Um, I think the at one point in the late 1800s, it was like 85% of all the children at, at a, a specific time were being ripped. And it was in, on the U.S. side that was happening, but on the Canadian side, every child... Was legally bound to be uh, to be torn away to these schools, and same in the U.S. So the numbers and the total numbers are are sometimes a little obscure, and the crazy part is these are church-run schools, federally funded, sometimes provincial or state-funded schools, but they were all run by churches, and churches kept records. I don't know if you, they got this thing that they call the Bible that they've been you know toting around for many many years. Um, which is supposed to be their record of uh, of the of the true word of God and all that other stuff yeah keeping records is something the church churches do so when you destroy records and when you purposely cover up deaths and abuses rapes uh, murders uh, abortions yeah abortions there were there were pregnancies that were terminated and in spite of the fact that the church and the Catholic Church in particular was so against uh, um, uh, birth control. There were children. There were girls who who had their um, uh, their their tubes tied. Uh, they they basically were were sterilized. So this is all the stuff took took place, and it happened for over a hundred and fifty years. And I and I think be, because we we look at this thing as just an event, like it happened. During a specific time period? No, it happened over a broad time period. I mean, it's like when we talk when I talk about genocide. You know, I, I have to bring bring up the the Spanish and the Portuguese and the French and the British. You know, and then there's other European countries involved too, the Dutch, <laughs> the Germans, and of course the Americans. But on this specific portion of the American Holocaust, which is you know, five hundred years old uh, or, or duration. This hundred and fifty years is just the United States and Canada, just the United States and Canada. Now, I'm not saying the same thing that was happening here, on the, in this hemisphere or in, in Northern America, North America wasn't happening in South America at the hands of the Spanish, or wasn't happening um, in Africa or Australia. And and look, I also want to make clear, these kinds of schools existed in Alaska and in hawaii before they were parts of the considered parts of the united states there was already some of this stuff happening in every place that colonization you know dug its heels in and it happened for a long enough period of time that i also think that get, what gets lost is the way the children are treated it changed i mean in, in the i mean think about this when the when these boarding schools were first started None of the children spoke english Let, um, let's be clear. none of the children spoke English, and so they were forced to learn English and they were prohibited from speaking language now by the time you get into the the turn of the century, now you've probably got some English speaking you know kids coming along, and in fact, the churches have had already been doing some of their missionary work in these communities, so some of the kids that were being ripped out of the communities they they actually had you know. The, the the good work of the missionaries to help strip these uh, these children out of their communities because you already had a church presence in some of those communities. Not in the beginning, but certainly you know towards the, the latter half of this, this time period. So there were some children who already spoke English that were already indoctrinated into the Christian faith who went to these schools. And now they were still abused uh, in large part, but they may not have suffered the same abuse from the children who were coming from places that were more remote, that may not have had a um english as a second language and you know or or had the you know the the knowledge uh what christianity was all about and you know i know i know today everybody wants to talk about what a loving god and you know and and all of the great attributes of christianity but let's be clear these churches that ran these schools were abusive and it not just and this wasn't just men this was women the nuns who ran these churches they committed some of these murders. They committed some of these atrocities. You know, we, we hear stories of ki- kids being thrown downstairs and you know, kids that were malnourished or if not starved, uh, you know, a- actually starved. Kids that died of exposure. I mean, kids who tried to run away from these schools, who died on, on, on their way. People like Cheney uh, Wenjack. And, you know, there, there's that's a whole story that uh, Gord Downey from, um, uh, had, had done on, on Cheney Wenjack. But there's all these horror stories of, of how children died, either trying to escape these schools or because of the living conditions. You know, you didn't have OSHA back then. You didn't have, you know, child, there wasn't like CPS checking in on these schools. These guys were the CPS. So they, the amount of abuse, the unsafe conditions, both where these kids lived and I know they're called schools, but these were like work camps, so the working conditions were were unsafe as well. So a child could die, even of a minor injury, because they didn't have the health care there. They they were, not, were they didn't receive proper medical treatment. So there was any number of things that would cause death, or um, or some sort of permanent injury, you know, uh, disability uh, upon these children. Now. If you think about what took place during this 150 years, you also had a few plagues. You had the Spanish flu, you had tuberculosis. When these things were, were running high through the non-native communities, they were worse yet on, uh, uh, on in these schools. The mortality rate during certain periods of time during this whole 100 to 150 years of residential schools exceeded 50% on multiple occasions. And this is documented by US and Canadian officials. So they knew this was happening. I also think, that, look, let me put, put something else in, into perspective. These schools started while slavery was still in, uh, a, a legal thing. Civil war was fought over it. Slavery was abolished, but the schools weren't. Women went through their women's suffrage you know, to gain certain rights for women but the but the girls in these schools didn't get any any of that. So you had civil disruption because of slavery, because of women's rights. You had the civil rights fight. You know that that went on for for you know for decades. If if we want to suggest that it's not still going on today. So through you know while Martin Luther King had his dream, well there were a bunch of children who had dreams too that were crushed. Nobody talked about Nobody talked about these children. Nobody talked about what the United States and Canada were doing to children through any of that civil rights era. Not I don't know anybody. Look, I know that King and others mentioned indigenous people, but they never mentioned this. Slavery got mentioned, but they never mentioned this. There were no child labor laws when they, when they started. But they came in, but in effect, what these kids—these kids were working, uh, working work fields. They were like migrant workers. They were being forced to to work not only in the fields, but they were also, you know, operating certain machinery. They were—they were, they were basically being the only schooling they were really, really getting was to be basically an unskilled laborer. So the working conditions and the living conditions were unsafe. The medical treatment was inadequate. Even though some of these were farms and they were actually raising food, these kids all suffer from malnutrition. Their living conditions, their sleeping conditions, and their work conditions were unsafe. And it didn't matter how much the laws changed in that 150 years to to do away with slavery, because these kids were essentially slaves. I mean, they were bound to these schools. They couldn't leave. Didn't matter how many laws changed, civil rights, women's rights, you know, child protection laws. None of them impacted what was happening for 150 years. And, and I don't think, as we talk about this, and frankly, I don't even know if Native people fully wrap our heads around how long this went on. Because, look, we, we all know people. We, we all had relatives who, who experienced this, right? I mean, we have, we have uncles or aunts or grandparents or parents that, that went through these schools but you know what? They went through the tail end of these schools. It was four generations before them that were already going through this thing. I mean, think about how much this impacted childbirth back home. I mean, the the reality is we lost, and I've said this before on the program, we lost more land, more population, and more autonomy during this 150 years, than at any other time in our history, we are, our population. I talked about this last week. Our population was down to to, to about, about a quarter of a million in the United States, and probably less than that on the on the Canadian side. we and we're here. We're talking about a population that was 100 of the of the uh, uh, of the population. We you know there was probably 30 million in, in what's considered the territory of the United States, and there's probably another you know 10 or 20 million that that lived on the Canadian side, but that that number got wiped out. And part of what helped wipe that out was not only the deaths that occurred at these schools, but by taking the children out of our communities, you reduced the population on those communities, which made it easier to take land. And you also stunted, not only through the sterilization programs of these schools, but by taking the children away, you actually discouraged people from having children. You also cut the ties between generations, not just between, between mother and child, but between grandmother and child, between aunt and, and niece and nephew. Uh, look, I talked about you know, my, my daughter's childbirth situation uh, on, on the last program. I talked about the fact that she gave birth at home because the, the hospital sent her home. The reality is in our culture, we, these ba- our babies would have been delivered with a, with a team of women around them, it would have been their mother, it would have been their sisters, it would have been their aunts. All of that got destroyed. The whole idea of everything from childbirth to child child rearing, education, to teaching, culture—all of that stuff got wiped out. For 150 years, I don't know that we can fully, even if we can fully digest what the first kids ripped away and sent to these schools experienced. We know some, we, we have some firsthand and secondhand accounts of what happened to the last generation of children that, that were ripped to these schools. But think about how much that cha- must have changed over 150 years. The children were treated like animals, especially in the beginning, because these were children that, the, that these church folks couldn't even communicate with. So, how'd they communicate with them? With a whip. With a staff, with a switch, with darkness and cages and handcuffs. Yeah, handcuffs. These, there, there's been they've turned up some of the, the little child handcuffs that uh, that were associated with um, the, these these residential schools. That's how they communicated with these children because they couldn't talk to them. They, they didn't understand them. And they would also send children to different places away, away from their communities so they would have no influence from their home territory, from their culture. They would try to split up kids. They'd try to make sure that you didn't have too many Lakota in one school, too many Mohawks in one school, too many you know, Cherokee in one school. So you kept, you, you kept the children separated. I mean, what was done in these schools is incredible. And yeah, I don't think, I don't think anybody fully grasps. It. I think my again, I, I don't even think our own people fully grasp this. So when we talk about things like truth and reconciliation, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a little bit hard to talk about truth and reconciliation. Because is the truth really gonna come out? Are we gonna talk about what the first children experience all the way through to the last children? Are we gonna really talk about that? I'm going to. And I'm gonna do it here. I'm gonna do it here on my, on my show. I'm gonna do it on, on Resistance Radio. I'm gonna do it in Let's Talk Native. Because I don't want to give anybody a pass. This isn't a forgivable sin committed by, you know, a, a few people who were, you know, maybe an outlier. No, this was a this was, these were national policies. These were these what, so listen to the to the Pope come to Canada and say that he apologizes for the abuse that people you know uh, uh, put these children through. he didn't apologize for the role the church played. he apologized for what individuals might have done in the name of the church but that's that's bullshit I mean <laughs> the church was directly involved there was no. Uh, you know, there was never any accountability, and why? I mean, it's kind of like the cover up on the, uh, the 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 clergy sex abuse scandals. They knew, and they covered it up. If they if they had a deviant priest, they'd send him to someplace else, and then he'd end up abusing children someplace else. Didn't, that wasn't even a problem in our, at our at, at our schools because there was no oversight. There was nobody to, you know, they could report all they wanted. And, and to a certain extent, th- there was a, a, a strange thing that happened. On the U.S. side, because there was a little bit more um, uh, worry or concern about the appearance, folks like the Pratt, who ran the, uh, the Carlisle Indian School, they would send kids home who were terminally ill because they didn't want them to die on their watch. They didn't want to accept responsibility for the fact that these kids lost their good their health under their care. And it would eliminate the, it would reduce the numbers. Look, the numbers were already incredible how many kids died in these schools. I mean, I don't know how many people can wrap their heads around uh, um, the fact that these schools required graveyards in the first place. I suspect anybody listening to this program didn't have a graveyard associated with the school that they attended, but these all did. Carlisle Indian School had a graveyard. And somewhere between 200 marked graves and probably closer to 500 uh, children who who they don't fully account for died at, at Carlisle Indian School. And many more were sent home to die. But on the Canadian side, they didn't want to go through the expense of sending the kids home. So there were unmarked graves. There were mass graves. I mean, the deaths are the same, but the but the mentality associated again with by the church and the churches. I mean, these weren't just decisions an, an arbitrary church uh, a church member, a, a nun or a priest made. You can bet that they ran it up the chain. What do you want? What, what do you want to do with these kids? We we just had uh, a you know we just went through a fifty percent mortality rate um, because of tuberculosis or the Spanish flu or whatever else. What do you want to do with all these kids? Uh, just just bury them. Unmarked graves. And that's what's being that's what's being um exposed now. Now, many of our territories, our communities knew that our children were being lost at these schools. But they had no recourse. <laughs> I mean, when I say they had no recourse, let me be clear. Native people didn't even have standing to bring a lawsuit against anything, whether it was somebody who who violated a lease. Or somebody who screwed them in some sort of you know contractual deal, or if well, somebody committed a crime, they could not bring a charge. It, they, we had no standing in court. So it's it's ironic that these churches would have the power of attorney over these children, because we had no legal standing to to ever even bring a case in these uh, in in those court systems. Again, I don't think that. Most people who hear, and and I know many people are hearing it for the first time, hear about these these residential, these boarding schools, these Indian boarding schools. I think even as you hear it, I don't think it's it. I don't think it's making the connection. I don't think this, I don't think the scale is being understood. And that is why I am so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about these things because. Look, we can talk about the crimes, but if we don't put some scale to it, and and look, the death of one child is terrible, but tens of thousands of kids were run through these schools. Many of them never survived, and those who did had a piece of them ripped away. So I'm grateful to, to WPFW for giving me this opportunity to talk about these really, really tough subjects. As I mentioned at the beginning, we are in the, uh, the fall fund drive. And, you know, the, look, the, one of the themes here is put your money where your ears are. And look, I'm hitting you with this tough stuff because I want you to put your money where your heart is as well. They're also saying, you know, one of the themes that they adopted, which is a very native theme, is, is trying to ensure that this station... That this ability to get this information out is secured for the next seven generations. I mean, all the generations through the next seven generations. So I ask that you go to the pledge line and support this, this station. I ask you to go to 202 588 9739 Again, dial two zero two five eight eight nine seven three nine. Or go online to WPFWDC dot.org/slash/donate. Now, that's kind of a new site. I mean, I, uh, they, they've revamped the, the website, so let me give it again. It's wpfwdc.org slash donate, and follow the prompts. Uh, and again, we, we are offering a, a special Indigenous um, People's Day pack, which is uh, some of the audio, some of the, the speeches, and some of the presentations given by, by folks like John Trudell, Dennis Banks, Russell Means and Winona Leduc and for a hundred dollar donation we'll send you a disc that'll have these uh, you know these powerful Native voices and again that represents a a pretty broad I mean these aren't all people from the same place. I know people oftentimes associate them with AIM but AIM was a was a movement that involved uh, some very distinct Native peoples from different territories so um I I think it's well worth hearing. I mean, John Trudell is is somebody who I I find a real um, alignment with on, on many of the things that he's, I I don't, I don't talk in, in spiritual nature, you know, like some of these guys do, but I think he's, he's been uh, very effective at communicating what the native struggle has been. I do think that, that there has never been the emphasis put on, uh, on the scale of these residential schools. um, And, as we talk about things like truth and reconciliation i think we have to hear those voices but we have to hear voices like mine and others who who have to put this stuff in perspective so if you if you're interested in this um, in this indigenous peoples day pack uh, we're looking for a 100 donation and we'll send you that disc with the, with these uh, these great uh, powerful native voices on it so again that's the indigenous peoples day pack you can ask for it when you call the pledge line 202-588-9739 and if you um, look for it when you're on the, the website, which is WPFWDC.org slash donate, you can also look, look for it there. And of course, I'm giving you content every week. I post the these shows up as a, as a podcast. I also do another podcast called Let's Talk Native. Um, and you know, having this resource, having the resource that WPFW is, uh, having that space, having that time slot. Is gives me an opportunity to to reach people that I I might not reach otherwise. Look, I know that I can get uh, a Native audience to to hear some of what I'm having to say, but when I'm speaking on the radio in Washington or in New York, I'm trying to educate the non-Native public. Uh, And and again, I know that, that because of 150 years of residential schools, there are a lot of people, Native people, who've lost major portions of uh, of their identity. That was the goal. I mean, that that was the genocide, to strip it away so we would cease to exist as a distinct people. Yes, eliminating our population or diminishing our population was a big part of it. Diminishing our lands was a big part of it. But diminishing our autonomy to say, you're no longer, we killed the Indian in you. That was the goal. Kill the Indian, save the man. I don't think salvation and, and saving was really a priority here. Because, what came out of those schools, were damaged people, and you know what? Those damaged people were our parents, they were our grandparents, they were our great grandparents. There was a whole. I mean, I just heard somebody recently on one of these native sites saying, "Yeah, well, we gotta, you know, we gotta uh, raise children the old-fashioned way with with God and the switch." That's a native person saying it. That's a native person who, who, who whose mind got twisted. By this indoctrination at these residential schools, because look, that's what they grew up with. It wasn't the parents that were that were bringing out the the, the you know the the switch to, to beat these children. It was nuns. It was fathers, but it wasn't dads. This has been our experience, and everybody has been impacted. Everybody, every native person today. Has been impacted by this. None of us escaped. None of us escaped the trauma caused by 150 years of these residential schools. None of us did. Because even if I didn't go to one myself, my family did. The people in, in the community. You know, we, we look at you know, what, what exists and, and some of the problems that exist, not just in in you know state government and federal government, but on so-called tribal government. Why do you think our governments are so so screwed up? Because that, they were created as a part of the same indoctrination. There were laws passed that, I mean, I, I talk about some of the things that, that happened during that 150 years. But they tried to force us into citizenship. When they passed the, the 14th Amendment, that didn't make us U.S. citizens. And they knew it. So they tried to pass a law in 1924 that, that forced us into citizenship. But they knew that that didn't necessarily work either. So ten years later, they passed the Indian Reorganization Act, which would redefine us as subordinate to the laws of the United States. At some point in the future, I've got to do a whole program, and actually, probably multiple programs, on the fight that we still have with the Internal Revenue Service on income generated on our lands. I know everybody thinks all oh, Indians don't Indians don't pay taxes. Well, we're not Indians and we have a constant war that we're fighting with IRS agents every single day. And and of course we also have the fight with, with state revenue departments as well. We're going through this every day and even on things that aren't where taxes is an issue. Look at look at what the Seneca Nation went through. The the governor froze her the froze the Seneca Nation accounts to squeeze half a billion dollars out of them of gaming revenue. Revenue that the Seneca's needed more, far more than the state does. But this is this is our experience. And the reason we bow down and we concede to the state, oftentimes, or to the federal government, is because of 150 years of the indoctrination that that our people went through as children. Look, we offer more resistance today than ever. We know things today that, look, everybody says, well, we got to go back to the old ways. Do you realize where the old ways were? you got to go back farther than five generations because in five generations, they were ripping kids off of our territories and, and contaminating our minds. We don't have a whole, we can't go to our elders for wisdom on, on the old ways. Why? Because they all, they all experienced the same thing. I'm not saying there aren't pockets of, uh, of of elders that were able to avoid some of this and and I'm so grateful that, that I know people raised by their grandparents who were able to keep their mind straight and who knew the culture knew the language see the the beauty in knowing the language isn't just being able to speak in a different tongue the language hides, or, or, or doesn't really hide, I, I guess the language demonstrates what our ancestors thought about how, the etymology of those words. Why does a word mean what it means? I mean, language isn't just labels. Langu- language is images. So when you create a word in a language, that image that that word represents came from that culture. So when we ask that question what were they thinking what were our elders thinking the the best way that we can we can answer that question is through the language but that language was ripped away that that language was washed out ripped out of out of out of the mouths of children and those children were were learning to speak the language before they got uh, ripped into ripped away from their homes and, and pushed into these schools they weren't ever in that place where they could fully understand the nuances of their own language in the culture the way that that language connects to culture once you take a child away from their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents you sever a connectivity a connection so that language has the meaning that it that is intended to have i'm grateful that we still have uh you know some skilled speakers. Who not just can, who who don't just speak the language, that who can dissect it and explain it. Understand, well, when we count to ten, what do those words really mean? When when we when we what does askah degani what does it mean when we count to ten? What do those actual words break down to? Why is the word for one aska? Why is the word for two degani? Well, there are people we still have in our communities. And it's amazing that they've even survived. And, and with this knowledge, that is. I, not just as individuals, but but the, the, it's amazing that the knowledge has even survived. But it has. And we today have survived so much of this, not just this indoctrination, but this idea that our identities have been redefined for us. Hollywood. I mean, you, you go back in the, in, the, in the 40s and the 50s, my people, the Haudenosaunee, thought dressing up in traditional clothing meant wearing a Plains Indian headdress. Now, I mean, we could argue, well, how could your people be so ignorant? Well, it was stripped away. So we took our cues from what people thought a Native person looked like. Today, we have a better sense for, for what our culture was. Than, than perhaps the generation before us. Look, our language still was, um, was fairly intact in spite of all this up to only a couple of generations. My father, uh, his, his English was his second language. So it wasn't stripped away from the Mohawks of Ganawage Here in Seneca territory, you might, you might have to go back another generation. But the language was intact only a generation or so ago. Now, I'm not saying that it was fully intact, because again, I think we lose some of the nuances of the language because of the indoctrination. I mean, when we start forming new words based on a church bell, you know, tolling out the hours, or you know, or or things like guns and, and new things that have crept into our culture through the through church and through government, money, it, it changes. Now, I'm not saying we didn't need to develop uh, new words, and our language. Our our language is still a living language, so we still do define um, the things that we say today, and we can still do that in our language. It's it's not as smooth as just having a a, a flat out label. We're not a noun ba- based language. We are um, verb or, or adverb, adverb or adjective based. You know, so our language is descriptive. It's not just labels. But if we don't if we don't learn if 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 we only learn our language as labels then we lose a lot. And so that's that's the challenge, that's the challenge. But again, understanding that that even voices like mine, the fact that my voice can speak to these issues today is, is incredible considering what our history has been. To have our population diminished by 99% and then have the surviving population of our people go through 150 years of, of, of this type of fourth indoctrination there is no example any place in the world where people have gone through what indigenous people of, of you know, have gone through through colonization but you can look at the United States history and all the stuff that they want to put a happy ending to oh yeah ended, slavery ended women got rights Civil rights Movement we're still not even fully acknowledging the scope and the scale of what native people went through as children through these residential schools. There's no truth without that, without understanding that scale and scope. And there and there will be no reconciliation without restoration of some of the things that were lost. All right, I'm, um, again, I'll be on the air at one o'clock on, on Monday uh, with a special uh, indigenous People's Day uh, program. I want to thank uh, Katia Stitt and uh, uh, the folks at WPFW for allowing me to have an opportunity to to do a program on on Indigenous Peoples Day. And we're going to talk about the challenges that that represents uh, on Monday. So look for me on WPFW uh, on Monday, uh, Indigenous Peoples Day and uh, at, at, 1, at 1 p.m. And I, I look forward to it. I want to thank you for listening. Um, man, Just just let some of this stuff sink in a little bit. It's it's pretty horrific when you when when you do. Uh, again, I want to thank you for thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Thank you.